Welcome back to Underscore, the show that celebrates the rich tradition of movie music, one film at a time. I am Marty Brueggemann, and with me as always is my brother Will. We have an exciting new format of episode to try out today. And this is something that we hope to continue in the future every so often. And there's one movie that was so fantastic and the music was such a sensation. I know for both Marty and myself that we just we needed to talk about it outside of the traditional underscore format because we didn't know when it would become applicable. But it's just something that's been on our minds. And it's the recent Mary Poppins returns. Oh, my gosh, Marty, this movie. I know we've already spent so many hours talking about the music and just our experience with the film, but tell me a little bit about like what your experience in the theater was like, because I I don't really remember. Were you alone? Were you with Alvina? Yeah, I don't think I'm ever going to forget my experience of watching Mary Poppins Returns in the theater. Yeah, we've been talking about this a lot and kind of planning on doing an episode for a while but luckily we're still in front of the uh, the academy awards and we are definitely rooting for this movie yeah um alvina and i watched it together and honestly i think my expectations were probably pretty low um right same here i, I didn't yeah. really know what to expect i i love the original mary poppins and I like you, you know, I'm a big fan of Disney musicals and everything, but it wasn't a film that I guess I would say I grew up with particularly. It's not sure. something that I watched as much as like the Disney animated movies or even something like The Wizard of Oz. But I had heard, you know, Gordy Hobb tweeted that thing about um, the score being sensational. And you had mentioned because you got to see it. Yeah, I was trying not to give too much away because I really, I I was hoping that you could have kind of like as an uninfluenced experience in the theater. It was a wonderful experience. So I don't know. Don't worry about that. Yeah, just (laughs) so for me, it was really from the drop in the theater where, yeah, I think my eyebrows just kind of shot up, um, and right away the the first music you hear uh basically yeah there's just too much good to say about the music in mary poppins returns the sound of the orchestra is incredible uh recorded in london with great london players at great london studios the orchestrations are just amazing and this opening number which lynn manuel miranda lynn manuel miranda sings uh, underneath the lovely london sky has just this indelible, lovely melody right <laughs> from the beginning, and um, it's such it's uh, it's such a beautiful song, and I think it's a it's a great foreshadowing of the caliber of Mark Scheiman's music yeah. um, and Scott Whitman too. I mean, they've been lifelong partners and collaborators. Yeah, uh, they did Hairspray, and they've done many other projects. You know, I've I've always been a fan of Mark Scheiman as a film composer. And right. I think we were just talking about him on the on the previous episode. Even. Right, and I wasn't completely sold on Hairspray, on the music of it. I think part of it, because sure. it seems like a little bit of like a little shop, I don't know, ripoff, or it's just kind of like mining the same well. Uh, but this music was incredible. It's everything, anyone that was like a fan of the old Sherman Brothers, Mary Poppins music, it's like, this is such a love letter to that. But in my opinion, it like transcends it. And it's this musical caliber, this language that's of 
you know, bygone Hollywood musicals, but just old Broadway. You know, the quality of songwriting here is like Richard Rogers, George Gershwin yeah. level, Jerome, Jerome Kern, Kern, that kind yeah. of thing. Like it's it's so sophisticated in every sense of it. Just the the melodic um inspiration just these really beautiful and pure right. lines but the structure but the like his structure of, yeah. of his songs honestly uh i i was just dumbfounded throughout almost every musical moment of the movie i kind of had had stopped believing there was anyone alive that could write music me too because i think of some of my favorite songwriters somebody like alan menken who's just masterful my hero um, yeah till the yeah. end yeah. but it, it's like he has his own style that's yeah, I would say from yeah, this. Alan is sort of like um, I think part of what was so exciting about the Disney Renaissance is it was like sort of the new generation. It was like a neo Disney, and I think a lot of Alan's best music is almost like a neo Broadway. I mean, he's incredible uh, at sending up these kind of old school Broadway pastiches, um, right. and I would never want to uh, bid these two geniuses against each other. I mean, they're both just outstanding in that space and it's not that one is better than the other but the just the structure uh the yeah the melodic structure of these songs in mary poppins returns just knocked me out um yeah and the structure is oh. a big part in in the craft i mean the structure yeah. may be talking about the form of something yeah but, sorry that's really what i mean i guess yeah the melodic structure of yeah Looking the way really that, at that, yeah, that the way that level. phrases begin and end, exactly. and upon repetition, when there's a subtle chromatic shift of a pitch or how things are transposed, it's this kind of subtle, nuanced, uh, very intellectualized songwriting craft that just has not really seemed to exist for decades and decades. And on the rare occasion that you get a really gem of a melody that's in a more old-fashioned style in a modern context, it's usually it doesn't have that same kind of crafted element you know and what was crazy about mary poppins returns is the whole movie i was just so surprised it was like who is this for i can't believe that you know i was in a theater in 2019 watching this kind of like british regal classy old hollywood kind of songwriting and just the whole experience was like i was coming out of my skin yeah yeah to me it didn't feel compromised by any kind of like modern sensibility um not that that's like inherently good or bad. Um, I I loved it in this case, but yeah, I was just I was just sort of stunned. And this for me, the movie had so much soul and heart and sweetness, but it also felt kind of weighted. Like I guess ironically right. compared to to Mary. But, well, and there oh, are, there I counted it. There are nine distinct like songs, and then there are reprises right. on top of that. But this is not a case where you have, you know, one great song, right. a couple good songs, and then some filler songs. At least in my opinion, they're all outstanding, and yeah. they all display that same level of particular melodic craft. And they're diverse songs. It's not like they're all samey. You have really emotional ballads. You have zany, off-the-wall kinds of songs. You have, you know, sort of this minery, klezmery, Russian kind of song right. that Meryl Streep does. You have this British kind of music hall kind of stuff. It's so eclectic, but it's all kind of period. It all feels old Broadway kind of standard tropes. But they're really well composed songs. Yeah, it's a it's yeah, not it's amazing. Like it's, yeah, Mark it 
it's like he he latched on to a few key, I would say, almost like melodic features of like Richard Sherman's style and the Sherman Brothers style. And that's a huge part of the musical language of this score. But uh, like you were saying earlier, there's really such a sophistication to the writing and to, yeah, just the melodic craft and structure and phrasing. And the accompanimental orchestration. Oh God, just I mean, terrific. the use of xylophone, the use of woodwinds, and uh, just the kind of string, lush string harmonies and that the playing you get. And the orchestra and is just and, yeah. outstanding. I mean, it, yeah, we've talked a lot about this, you and I. Um, but it really just stunned me because this is not, this is so far from uh, the status quo, uh, I, almost like as you can get in, I would say, film music and movie musicals in terms of the sound and the approach. And and I'm not, obviously, I, I love this. I'm not trying to say that this is better than approaching something in kind of a newer con- or contemporary way or trying to orchestrate a musical um, in sort of an aesthetic that we haven't heard before or that isn't sending up something more old-fashioned or um, kind of beloved, but... It was just the perfect occasion for it, you know? Yeah. As I've been processing it more, um, it's it's really left me pretty optimistic uh, because on paper it makes sense. It's like, okay, the largest movie studio in the world with all that's at their disposal, they should be able to commission a project with outstanding music, outstanding orchestration, in, you know, incredible lyrics that's performed exceptionally well, that's recorded in the highest fidelity. But it's for whatever reason, the I guess the way um, our movie history has sort of gone in the last 20 years, that's that's very much not the norm. Well, and also it just, it seems like, the decisions were made for the betterment of the art rather than the commerce because they hired a director who, you know, is a very artistic director. He's known for more kind of sophisticated films and they hired a composer who he's not the hottest guy in town. You know, I mean, they would, if they wanted to do something flashy and bring young people to see this Mary Poppins or something, or have Lin Manuel Miranda write the music yeah, there you for go. it. You know, he's in the the movie. Right. And so what what's interesting is all the choices to me were done out of genuine reverence for the source material and out of a love for wanting to create another Mary Poppins. And the thing that I loved about it is even though I didn't grow up like a big Mary Poppins fan, I really resonated to that sort of like niche specific ode that they were doing you know because we've done that kind of thing whether it's like a specific video game soundtrack or a specific uh thing of a film composer that we want to capture in our own music i could relate to that like you could tell the director the composer they all loved mary poppins so much not just old broadway but specifically mary poppins in like nailing that and it was so cool and exciting that people nowadays could do something like that so faithfully the other thing we haven't talked very much about the lyrics i mean all of these melodies are wonderful and every song is catchier and more memorable than the next but they're also paired 
with perfect lyrics, lyrics yeah. that capture the sort of whimsy, the nonsensical, imaginative, but also fun don't feel like sequels. Also, they don't feel like they're burdened by um, like yeah, a mandate not like to a one feed up the birds the two and yeah. a spoonful of sugar too. It's, like that, it, it's like these, that logic, these titles um, are so kind of elemental. They almost feel like they could have been the original. Uh, Mary Poppins. Right, and some of them are like more, That that's the thing that I was just floored by, is like that first song that Lynn does, it's like gosh, I think this is a better opening than Chim Chimini Chim Chimaroo Look, I love Hot Dick take. Van Dyke, I love the original <laughs> but it's like, and then uh, the song that they wrote for Emily Blunt's character, the first song that she sings to the children I, is called Can I You won't, Imagine I, I That? I don't think I'm able to talk about <laughs> that. That was maybe the best experience I've had in a movie theater in in many, many, many years. Some people like to laugh at life and giggle through the day. They think the world's a brand new shiny toy. And if while dreaming in the clouds they fall and go splat, although they're down and bent in half, they brush right off and start to laugh. Can you imagine that? I mean, first of all, Emily Blunt is capturing this Julie Andrews thing. And um, I mean, we've been saying how Mark Scheinman is really honoring the Sherman brothers, but I think beyond uh, some of the kind of melodic and harmonic hooks that he's maybe honoring from that original score, it's much more of the ca- like a caliber and style of a, like a Richard Rogers or Rogers and Hammerstein. Um, sort of thing, and so right, the people which, who inspired the yeah, Sherman which brothers, works just you know. as well if you're trying to kind of inhabit like uh, a Julie Andrews kind of vocal, like Emily does in this song. Right. Um, well, that's the, the the great thing about it is it's capturing your memory. I think the thing about yeah. the Sherman Brothers and a lot of Disney composers is. What you forget with the early stuff is it was actually kind of a folksy yeah, very much sound. So. It's very earthy and kind well, of I like think that's of what, the people unpretentious, that's like what not overly loved harmonic. about the Sherman Brothers right. so much. But the thing that was great about what they did with Mary Poppins is I feel like they were a little bit heightened. There was this slightly added level of like chromaticism to all of the right. melodies and this like stately British quality that I think they were trying to capture. Yeah, kind of working and up that's to just the what Shyman yeah. just digs into. And lyrically though, I mean the <sighs> that song when they go into the um I guess okay, spoiler alert if you haven't seen the film, but they they travel inside this bowl, this really beautiful kind of ornate Ceramic antique bowl. bowl. Yeah. Yeah, and everything becomes like a uh, the the live action characters are walking around with cartoons, just like in the original. And it looks film. amazing, <laughs> yeah. and it has an impeccable melody. This song that takes yeah. place, it reminded me of like a Hal Roach, um, Leroy Shield yeah, totally. kind of bum, 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 oh, bum. so good. But then when it gets to that chorus, and in, in this dilly dynamical, simply ceramical, it's just like yeah, it's that sort kind of, of like silly the... nonsense. Dr. Seussian Well, it's language. a beautiful follow-up to Supercalifragilistic. Ex- right, right. Exactly. It definitely lives <gasps> in that world. <clears throat> but what's, what I really enjoyed about the movie is it doesn't make a big deal about the fact that you're kind of returning to all of this, that you're returning yeah. to the, the world of this kind of musical style and the world of Mary and all the magic that... You know, well, and it creates so much original stuff that it's like 
it, it's the the level of reference yeah. is very subdued. The movie relies on its own melodies and motives like that. Can you imagine that? That's sort of the Mary Poppins. Yeah, that's theme. kind of like her. But it's like theme. I never felt like I was missing nods to a spoonful of sugar or feed the birds or anything like it. Yeah, it totally. It's it's just so fantastic. This this new material and there are those nods. You know, when characters from the old film meet characters from the new film, you'll hear little winks and nods. And yeah, it's I, all lo- very I love what Mark. Did because I believe that all of the Sherman Brothers quotes are in the score and they don't take place within any of the of the songs. And I th- they, they are at the last song. Oh yeah, you do hear, to go, but yeah, you up, hear a little bit. But it's still just like instrumental, right. and that's the surprising thing. I was expecting they were going to have like three reprises of songs from the original movie for nostalgia's sake, and there's none yeah. of that. There's nobody sings. I mean, somebody mentions um, "Go Fly a Kite," and you can hear nods to that melody yeah, at, totally. w- towards the end of the movie, but it's like. If you hadn't seen that, there's just the, it's so subtle, and there's so much great new material that it genuinely doesn't yeah. need to rely on any. Yeah, of it just stuff. felt like the decision making and the the producing team behind the film. It's like you said. Um, I mean, it struck me as though they're motivated by by uh, the art, like the artfulness that'd be possible with the project, and. Yeah, it was part of what was so stunning to me. It just did not feel like a contemporary production. And uh, for me, I, I mean that in the best the best possible way. Not that I I yeah. don't love a lot of, you know, contemporary productions. I mean, but it, it did have great, you know, visual effects. It yeah. had a great cinematography, really good performances. Uh, the other thing, so I think we've talked about some of the more fun songs and I think maybe one of the ultimate which is called uh, Trip a Little Light Fantastic, oh which when that yeah, this is like the 11 o'clock it. number, the, really I, the show stopper. I, so I cried so many parts during this yeah, movie just too. because it was like I it felt like one of those things where it's like I can't believe this exists and was it made for me <laughs> and my brother yeah. like it was crazy. So th- when this song happens and he sings let's say you're lost in a park shore you can give in to the dark or you can trip a little light fantastic with me. And when I heard that phrase, yeah, I almost stood up and like cheered. I'm like, yes, this is the song. Because it's what? like, it's yeah. such a great but colorfully unique phrase that yeah. sounds like, I swear to God, I've heard that before. And it's like as clever as anything from Mary Poppins. Well, and it's so awesome because, oh, yeah, Mark starts it um, basically at kind of like the slowest rubato-ish tempo possible. And right. you get this feeling that you know like there's this potential energy energy bubble. It's like what happens with the beginning of BR. Yeah, it's like you know you're in for something great, and he's aware of that, and he's about to deliver it to you like in the most kind of graceful and fulfilling way. But just that phrase, trip a little light, fantastic. What the fantastic is what I love about it is it's 
this is a thing that used to happen, I feel like, in old songwriting, where there would just be words put in just because they were beautiful words, and they would become, they would assume their own phrase. Yeah. It's its own entity in and of itself. And assume a phrase in the culture that's meaningful. Right. You know? That's this thing that's so cool, is it's like, what, what the grammar, what does that even mean? Triple little light, fantastic. Is the light itself fantastic, or is fantastic an exclamation? Who cares? It's such a great Yeah, it's having beautiful and phrase. musical fun with with language which and it yeah. feels it's such a great pastiche it feels like a kind of thing that happened in old songwriting and i there was so much of that that i'm like this is such a clever idea and it's telling the story really well and it fits with the melody it's like what i'm curious just if i could talk to scott whitman and mark Scheiman, what were the early drafts like were there yeah, other songs that you were writing were there other titles for this what came first did the name trip a little light fantastic was that there the other one the song meryl streep does is a yeah. great contrast because it's this sort turning of minor like i mentioned yeah klezmer thing it's called turning turtle and her whole thing is that on every second wednesday uh she's all backwards and yeah her house literally can go flips right upside down yeah yeah, and like a turtle on its back, which is kind of a stretch. But the thing that I was wondering is like, was that a lyric thing? Because it's not like turtle is that easy of a word to rhyme with. And they do great, you know, turtle, girdle, hurdle, everything you could possibly yeah. conceive of. Um, but it's such a great idea for a song. Yeah. And it just that intro that, that she sings, I just... <laughs> If you ring me something broken on a Thursday, I'll make new with my glue, pins and thread. But you bring when I'm a working on a Friday. I will mend and then spend the day in bed. But and then that fir that first melody is at that same level what we're talking about, just like this pure and infectious melody. But then the way that Mark takes it through its paces and transforms and handles and weaves and evolves it, that's that's the thing I guess I'm trying to talk about that it's that's done at such a high level, um, in a way that is really unheard of. I mean. That that's a, I mean I, I search high and low for for something like that. Right. So it's like well, and I feel like what happens often is maybe they'll nail the harmonic or orchestrational style, sure. and it'll just be sort of a patter song. Like when yeah, she exactly. started, I was expecting that that she would just be spitting a word a minute, not really a clear melody, but it would have this pastiche sound. Yeah. But what I was not expecting is okay, all that stuff is nailed, but it has a really elemental and catchy melody. Yun dun dun. Dun dun dun, ya dun dun dun, 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 like it's really pure kind of economy of notes. Dun ba dun bum 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 dun, you know, like really yeah. well composed. Ya dun dun, ya dun 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 dun. You know, it's like it's such a complete phrase. It's really satisfying to listen to. The words go with it really well. The orchestration is wonderful. There's this kind of solo violin. Yeah, trying to capture almost sort of like a like a. Yeah, gypsy jazz kind of. Glow. Yeah, and it has like a yeah, da, 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 yeah. kind of a thing going on. Oh, it's just oh it's remarkable. Gosh. It's amazing. I mean, we uh, touched on it a little bit ago, but for me, I think whenever I think of this movie, I'm I'm immediately going to go back in that moment where I'm in the middle of uh, Emily's first song. Can you imagine that? And yeah, it's, the kids are singing along, and it's just it's beautiful. Once again, the lyric is incredible. I mean, that title is. That's the most Disney 
perfect. <laughs> I'm getting chills thinking right. about it. But yeah, it gets to a point in the song where it's basically like the third refrain. And by this point, they're deep into their imagination and they're sailing across the ocean in this bathtub, Mary and the children. And they're all singing this chorus together. And I was just weeping. It was such a perfect piece of music. And honestly, I... I never thought I would experience that particular kind of music, that particular kind of rich old Broadway in a new in a new film, like ever, I ever know. in my life. It's um, it's crazy. I mean, the other it's like it's rivaling some of the best yeah. musicals, in my opinion, just in terms of the quality of every single song, uh, and just the. Yeah, the quality of the melodies themselves. Like, it, they're not just pretty good, and they're not just, they have a catchy first few notes. They also have that crafted, yeah, very, the, very the completion or, very of the ornate. phrase. Every iteration of it does something else with the development. It's like, it, it's so sophisticated. I think the Triple Little Light Fantastic has a great version um, of, at the end of the first phrase, <laughs> But then the later time, yeah. um, it 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 gets elongated, and right. every every time that that melody is repeated, it's changed, and it doesn't feel like an arbitrary change. Right. It's a really purposeful change that has forward momentum with the song. It brings you into a new section. Well, there's a brilliant sidestep in that song where they get to have it always. They have this kind of. Um, it's it's almost like this like Cockney patter song, but it gets to it gets to feel like it has these like overtones of like almost like a rap thing, and you've got wind there, and it feels it just sort of feels all right, and right. it's basically these. Well, and they do that in that Cockney yeah. song. Oh my gosh, that's um, the Once Upon a Time in a Nursery Rhyme. Yeah, it was a and it's like it's really cute, and but yet but it's it doesn't like feel like it more breaks. It doesn't cool. really like break the period somehow. It's. Right. It's kind of it's kind of crazy, but that section in Triple Little Light, fantastic. Uh, there's this moment where it's this like spoken, um, you know, mile a minute kind of patter song, and the idea is that all of these lamplighters kind of speak their own slang language that's based on rhyming, which is perfect for a song and perfectly musical. And they have like Mary up on this pedestal and she's basically translating all the rhyming, but of course in time and- We had this ball. Rabbit in the hole. That fell and broke. Bicycle spoon. So we took it to a shop. Like a lollipop. And went upside down. That's a circus clown. Then went to the bank. Rattle and clang. Got lost in the fog. Lump on a log. So we found a Oh my gosh, Emily Blunt is so cool, and I, I could not, yeah, I, I could really not awesome. fathom how cool she was. And anyways, it's this, it's this great contrast to the kind of musical material in the rest of the song. But what's what I think is so amazing, and it's not just in Triple Little Light Fantastic. I think in uh, Mark Scheiman and and Scott Whitman, they leave no opportunity um, on the on right. the table here the close right. in every sense yeah of the, the close word. of this song they've they're like repeating that title and it's like going towards this big finish and then all of the lamplighters like repeat their little like rap underneath 
like that yeah. final chord oh, it's and so it's so magical oh my gosh so good it's so cool yeah and we're talking about seizing every opportunity the ballad of the or like the central ballad there's a ballad called the conversation that yeah. the dad sings a kind of to his yeah. uh wife which i think is his late it's wife. really nice and um really beautiful and powerful yeah and, and ben kind of features Wisha, he, he, yeah he starts by sort of speaking his way into the first verse um, which I thought worked. I thought worked really well. It's really, it's really chilling and beautiful. We haven't spoken in so long, dear. This year has gone by in a blur. Today seems everything's gone wrong here. I'm looking for the way things were. I know you'd laugh and call me tragic, for everything's in disarray. These rooms were always full of magic that's vanished since you went away. But the main ballad yeah. of the movie is called The Place Where the Lost Things And this Go, is now which... the song that's uh, sadly the only nominated uh, Oscar-nominated song from from Mary Poppins. Which I think returns. is ridiculous. I mean, I think every song is equally as... Yeah. I mean, I, I love win, this song, and yet it's another an moment song. where, you know, move to move to tears. But, uh, boy, what I wouldn't... Get, this, but yeah. this is an example of, like, every instance of the melody being slightly altered. I right, felt the right. same way hearing Remember Me in the theater for sure. Coco. I probably like that song more than this, but that's one song. This movie has nine, uh, uh, like, at that kind of caliber. Yeah, yeah. But that idea that every time the phrase expands you know the remember me to use that as an example of what i'm talking about you have but then later it's you know each time it gets higher when you get to that part of the phrase there's a similar kind of very subtle motion happening in this song where kind of at the end of a phrase it'll do one thing and then it'll lead into a B section but then upon the reprise it'll take you into a slightly different ending and you get this it's just so it's yeah. so well structured because there never there never feels like a, there's a note out of place there right. never feels like random filler words that we've got to yeah. You know, yeah, I, I think into this the moment. lyric is a real star of this song, "The Place Where Lost Things Go." Um, and uh, yeah, and Emily Blunt's performance is is just <laughs> it. She really gets to this. I mean, the, the entire team together get to this timeless place, um, to this timeless space, rather. Um, and I'm and there's certain oh man, unique so things about the melody of, of the song that to me were like they do something that I've never heard before. That's the other sure, cool thing sure. is like I feel like it's positioning itself as like a quintessential Disney ballad and it has some of those elements. Like it has sort of the mankiny of like the suspensions. You know what I'm talking right. about. But yeah, he doesn't um, doesn't go quite as into the kind of dream yeah. and wonderland like that. Right. It's also it has a little bit of the old fashioned. Ending with this kind of almost more Germanic classical type of closing the phrase, thing. yeah, with more of a yeah. perfect cadence. But then my favorite part of the tune um, is that part at yeah. the end. Oh man, yeah, where it goes down to, to the, the seventh. seventh. Yeah. There until it's time to show. Spring is like that now, far beneath the snow. 
hiding in the place where the lost things go. That major seventh is a is a real star of this of yeah. this score. Can you imagine that too? Is uh, it's this beautiful leap from the third degree down to the seventh, and then kind of that lovely climbing figure after that. Um, yeah, that really, I think, yeah, so speaks to the details that, too, that you, you were know? talking about um, you know, bum, that bum, make this so sophisticated. And it's one of those things where it's like, they're not superfluous chromatic choices. Right, they're, right. they're they're leaned on. They're, they're uh, in a classical analysis, you would call it as an accented non-harmonic tone. Right. Um, and it's what it's the part of the melody that's catchy. And that's what I love is it's like people there have been some complaints of music recently that it's not very chromatic. Um, but I think one of the things that I think maybe modern songwriters have like a derisive view of chromaticism in songs is that they think it's too uh, like ornamental. Well, I think what's difficult is there was so much brilliant uh, chromatic music and chromatic uh, discovery in the Broadway Tin Pan Alley period that it almost has an association with like specifically that style. And I could see from right. some modern songwriters, they might feel it's kind of only connected to that sure. sort of style. But what I thought was really great about not to be regressive and go back to that earlier song. Can you imagine that? But what's so great, that's sort of Mary Poppins theme, so to speak. But what's so great about it is every little chromatic choice is, is necessary yeah. and noticeable. Like you and harmonized with it so much intent. Pitch. Yeah, yeah. Like that dro- you know, that drop down to the seventh is actually harmonized in this beautiful way. Where uh, if you're picturing it in G major, you still have your your G in the bass, but there's like an F sharp um, dominant seven right. chord on top of that. Like harmonized. it's like a barbershop quartet kind of yeah, move totally. Where everything is harmonized in parallel. Actually, it's a move like John, John Williams does that in uh, Weaving Hogwarts. The, yeah, da, 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 yeah, when he gets to the seventh, there, right. it's that same thing. This like a, a dominant seventh chord built on the seventh degree, um, with the with the tonic in the bass. Um, anyways, mm, yeah, it's a and that's, yeah, that's such a different sound. context of it. That's although I guess that another British. <laughs> what it made me think of was um, just kind of like that sort of i know both of us we love that like 1950s production jazz orchestra yeah, music absolutely. it made me think of that and it made me think of like barbershop quartet oh harmony, totally sure uh specifically but that's interesting you brought up that williams example because i do when i think of kind of like parallel triads as a part of a harmonic progression i definitely think of that yeah for sure well so um there's uh, there's been some conversation back and forth as to which of the nominated songs were going to be performed live at the Oscars, which seems crazy to me that that's ever a consideration. I, I mean, it could just be that maybe we're, we're just a little too musically centered or driven. But to me, wouldn't that be one of the main attractions of your show every year? It would be the musical performances of these original songs that come from that right. those years films and um i mean i'm 
I'm rooting. I'm rooting for the place where lost things go, and I hope that we get to hear. Uh, it's em- probably going to em- be the Lady Emily Gaga. sing it. Um, but yeah, that, I mean that Lady Gaga song is amazing. But it's boy, great. What, yeah, wow, how wonderful would it have been though if Triple O Light Fantastic had gotten the nomination and you had Lynn and Emily and a whole and a whole gang singing. Um, you can actually find it on YouTube. But the year that Beauty and the Beast was up for nominations and they actually had three songs nominated which historically you know multiple nominations can kind of split the vote um but the title song beauty and the beast uh won of course but they had put on an incredible production of these songs live at the oscars with the original voice actors dressed in costume as the characters um and so you can hear them sing uh, the song Bell, and the actor that <laughs> performed Gaston is dressed as Gaston, and Paige O'Hara, I believe is her name, is dressed as Bell, and there's a giant cast of dancers, and it's it's amazing. Um, That's miraculous. I don't know. I I sort of feel like isn't that like isn't shouldn't that be the spectacle that's making the Oscars? Like a, yeah, I mean, a the, TV I, event. I, I, don't I don't mean know. to be cynical, but there's so much about the Oscars that I, I've, I've tried to yeah. not become invested into the nomination process I because it just, I mean, I, I don't know, I can't really speak to it, and I don't want to be needlessly critical, but I, I, every year when if there if I'm involved in like an Oscar pool or like a bet, I, I almost always win, and my approach is so cynical it's just i go in every category and think like who's who's the person that i almost least want to win that i think doesn't like is least qualified to win in this category but could provide some sort of pretentious artistic or like political motive for giving them some sort of award and then it's like that's what wins and it's like so consistently that it's like i try not to get upset you know and I, I'm exaggerating. You know, there are certain times, you know, I love Alexander Desplat. I like when he won for Grand Budapest Hotel. That was a huge shock to me. Um, I never expected him to win for that score because right. it was so melodic and good and interesting. Uh, I thought it would be some like pretentious indie movie from a composer I've never heard of doing kind of bland, banal, backgroundy music. Sure. But like, so sometimes you're, you can be surprised. Um, but it's just like, I, I don't know. I, yeah. I don't want to be cynical, but it's like when you get disappointed so many times with like what movies get nominated or don't get nominated and yeah it seems like unfair there's certain things that are like i'm so glad you know like uh jordan peele winning for get out here, here. but yeah, i also thought absolutely. that probably should have won best picture yeah um, oh god i would have been all for but that. it's like well also not, uh you know <laughs> they're never gonna have remember a me movie which you mentioned picture. which is one oh, of god. the great 21st century songs yeah. and disney songs mm-hmm. you know I mean, that, of course, deserved to win, and that was really exciting that that Yes, won. yes, Maybe, yes. Yeah, yes. Let's, look, uh, let's look at some of the nominations. That might be kind of fun. So for songs, um, besides the place where lost things go from Mary Poppins Returns, um, we do have Shallow from A Star is Born, uh, which is written by Great song. Yeah, Lady Gaga and Mark Ronson and Anthony uh, Rosamondo, Andrew Wyatt, and Benjamin Rice. Hey, dude, I, I don't mean to like not to have a little tangent, but uh, I saw A Star Is Born in the theater. I really liked yeah, it. Yeah, no, and let's that have song in particular. I thought was great, 
And uh, something that I noticed is like, I, it had like a Dave Grohl kind of <laughs> flavor to it. I could it. see that. And I started to notice like certain things about Lady Gaga's writing style, like how I feel like a big thing with her is continuing to leap back up. Where sure. like with Dave Grohl, it's all about like finding his way down. Right, right. You know, like his resolution is dun, 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 you know. Yeah. And her thing is all about going back up to like a higher note. It might just be something about she's such a powerhouse singer or something. But it's like it was interesting. Oh, that's really I, cool. I really liked that song because it felt like a very genuinely written song, and I, it had like it was catchy and had like melodic elements. Well, that and I, thought I, were I think really it memorable. did it did create this cultural moment. I mean, that's what it sort of seemed like to me. And I think that that section of the movie, it's just. It, I don't know. It's like this. It is this movie magic. Um, right. And here you have well, this film that's being remade a for the really the killer third song. Time. Yeah, absolutely. You know, what? and it's like when she hits that. I'm of the deep great it's, it's like so you want to cheer well what i saw i love about it is it's like it's a celebration of a unique person because um after there's that that section where she's kind of doing that like vocal solo like oh, oh, oh and it's like yeah right it's the kind of thing on on paper i like i almost feel like the kids would like not think that's cool like that's not something you do in like a pop ballad whatever but it's somehow so core to lady gaga and who she is that you you just cheer for it it's just so Mm -hmm. it's like evocative and cool yeah and i don't know i just i I I like that movie was really i was disappointed that uh it wasn't um that he wasn't nominated for best director uh, because I know he was for the BAFTAs, I want to say, but he wasn't for the Oscars. But yeah, he was. It, it surprises me because it was one of the things that I was most impressed with. Yeah, I was knocked out. By Brad First of all, like the 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 direction, it was such a real movie. Like the relationships between all of the characters and the actors, I didn't feel like there was that kind of hammy exposition or like B actor that's playing some sort of straw man kind of trope, which almost always happens with movies about music. You could quarrel with a thing or two about like how unrealistic is it that she just goes out there and everybody knows the song and like the basis, like didn't somebody have to write out a chart for the musician? So like, I get the, like you could nitpick the, the details of it, but as far as like the broad strokes of the movie, I don't know. It's probably one of my favorite movies about, the music industry because i feel like the the mood of it captured a lot of what is real and just the relationships between uh the two leads was great and i I also like movies that have characters that aren't just kind of like i don't know i i like movies with flawed characters where they're not just kind of a projection of the director's own ideals. This is why like, I'm a huge defender of Ariel. Like A lot of people criticize The Little Mermaid, and they think like it has a bad message. Yeah, they say that basically women. Ariel kind of, lo- when she loses her voice, she, she really kind of loses all her agency. 
and that it's other characters in the film that are sort of making things happen. Right. I guess my feeling, though, about Ariel is, though, it's like what makes her interesting to me as a character is that she makes a bad choice. Like, right. you can relate to why someone would make that choice. And the movie isn't saying she made the right decision. Um, and so what I, what I like about Ariel as opposed to, not to <laughs> pit Disney princesses against each other, but, like, someone like Belle, I, had, I was never able to relate to her because she was presented as kind of, like, this perfect, she reads, she's yeah, nice. Yeah, she's sort of complete. And it, it's yeah, almost it's like... it's just boring. She's... She's kind of in the end. It's almost like she's sort of charitable with her heart well, to the and, beast. Yeah, as a as a kid, it felt to me like it was a little bit like propaganda from adults to try to get us kids to read. <laughs> sure. Like I felt a little bit like I love reading. Let's go to the library, and I just like. I don't know. I I couldn't relate to it as much as like Aladdin, who's kind of a thief, but he's like a good thief. And I I, I don't know. I feel like a main character and I like Bradley Cooper's character just to circle back to A Star is Born. You know, he makes bad decisions. He says really horrible things, but you also empathize with him and understand him and their relationship. I thought was really interesting. And I will not be disappointed if Shallow wins. I just think... Uh, no pun intended, there's not as much depth to that songwriting as there is sure. to anything in yeah, Mary it's, Poppins. Yeah, it's, it's not really fair to, to kind of pit those songs against each other. Um, well, the other songs in the category, really, um, it's, I think, maybe one of the most like diverse groupings of original song uh, nominations. But I think that also makes it... Oh, um, just that that much more difficult because uh, as unfair as it is to compare uh, the music from A Star Is Born to the music from Mary Poppins Returns, I think as you have even more, uh, you have even more of like a spread and more diversity in the genres. It's just it's kind of impossible to compare these things. So other nominees are all the stars from Black Panther, um, which uh, Kendrick Lamar and SZA, I think she goes by, and that's an awesome song um and i yeah love the production of that love the chorus hook uh yeah kendrick's rap in there is amazing uh but yeah it's what on what on what grounds do you compare that to the place where lost things go it's as uh, right i mean it's (laughs) it's real yeah it's really as though yeah you're in kind of entirely different worlds and and i get that it's the Oscars are about film and they happen to include music. Well, it's but... as different. It's as different as comparing uh, like Reservoir Dogs to It's a Wonderful Life. Yeah. You could say they're both incredible films and they're both really important films and they're both maybe classic films. Right. Um, but it's like you can't really compare them in an equivalent sense. And you also comparing them is, this is the problem I think with art at any given point is like, and we were having this conversation you and I the other day that it's like, we can nerd out and obsess over the particulars of what makes a great melody. We can obsess over the particulars of what makes a great piece of music. But I do think for the average person, what they get out of a film, what they get out of a, a song or a, performance of comedy or anything is it's being able to relate to the humanity of of someone and being able to kind of have almost this unspoken dialogue 
with another person and yeah. they're expressing their emotions or they're expressing something that says something about the human experience and people tap into that. And I don't mean that to be like, it's a really intellectual process. I think it's almost for most people, an entirely emotional one. Yeah, I think. And so I, think I do right. think it's like, I don't know, grading songs or comparing them and say who wins. It's like, it is a challenging prospect because if you were taking only songs written in an old Broadway style, you could almost develop a rubric of who's nailing it better, or you could really legitimately break down the craft of songwriting and I think have some semblance of objectivity. Yeah. But when you have to compare songs from disparate genres, then it's like, what are you comparing it to? Is each one held on a different scale to its own thing? But then also, shouldn't you measure the cultural impact of something too? And it it gets really fuzzy. Well, and, and I think of course, like all the voters impossible. aren't going to share the same... Uh, methodology or right. reasoning behind their voting, and that's that's of course their their right. Um, but this is going to be interesting. Uh, so other nominees are uh, "I'll Fight" from RBG, the Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, the documentary, not the the film uh, adaptation, and uh, that's written by Diane Warren, performed by Jennison, Jennifer Hudson. Um, I mean, Jennifer is one of the best living vocalists. Diane is one of the best living songwriters. She actually wrote that. Uh, people kind of tease it, but the song that Lady Gaga's character sings on SNL from Star is Born, that was a Diane Warren um, jam. And that's like one of the hookiest things in the movie, I think. Um, kind of takes repetition to sort of a, a crazy place or whatever. Um, so there's that. And then right. there is also, let's see, last nominee uh, when a cowboy trades his spurs for wings from the Ballad of Buster Scruggs, the Coen Brothers Netflix. Film. Oh, is that the opening song? Yeah, that's uh, that's the opening song. Yeah, that was pretty that good. was written by David Rawlings and Gillian Welch. Um, I'd be fine if that didn't win. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was I thought that was, was really good. sweet, was and um, I think that was and that was probably I would say maybe because it's a if you haven't seen it. Um, it's kind of like an anthology style film where it's comprised of these mm -hmm. smaller chapters or stories. And uh, yeah, I watched the first one. I think the the opening maybe is this the strongest. That's what actually. I that's what I'd heard. Uh, fun fact: the guy that he shoots out in the saloon is uh, Clancy Brown, oh, yeah. the voice of Mister Krabs. Oh, Clancy Brown is great. I mean, yeah, he does a lot of. A lot of good voices. Um, let's let's look at this. This will be fun. Um, I'm curious what our takes are on the original score nominees. So we have Mary Poppins Returns, uh, Mark Scheiman and Scott Whitman and Mark share a credit, I think, because that's sometimes a, a tradition um, when you're talking about music that was built uh, collaboratively. Um, I've experienced people that have kind of like questioned that uh, methodology in the past, but um, you really have to understand in some writing teams, it's a, a piece of music or a melody doesn't really exist without kind of the instigation of a, of a lyric, let's say, and, and vice versa. But uh, yeah, I, I believe they're, I believe they're both part of the nomination. At least that's what I'm, I'm basing this off of the, the, uh, the list, uh, the list of nominees on Variety. Um, so Alexander Desplat also is nominated for um, Isle of Dogs. So once again, a great movie. Wes Anderson but, collaboration. Uh, this is another example. There was a, I can't remember if it was a film he did, but there was that movie, was it called The Artist? 
that quoted a lot of um yeah despot wasn't involved in that but yeah the artist okay but well, whatever yeah. that movie that movie won best score and it's like the best music in but it, it really quotes vertigo yeah uses vertigo and i'd say the same with isle of dogs the really the only like memorable melodic element and i love Desplat. he's done great stuff with wes anderson but the best melody in it is from lieutenant kijay the um prokofiev yeah piece so that's a little an odd choice to me for best score but great movie and good music you yeah know? that's interesting uh black klansman the spike lee film uh with the score by terrence blanchard's also nominated but yeah i've yet to see the full the full film um i have good heard good things about it um yeah i know terrence comes from more of a jazz background if i'm not mistaken. Oh, neat. I believe a trumpeter. Yeah, so let's see. Yeah, so other nominated scores are uh, If Beale Street Could Talk by Nicholas Brattel. He also composed the score to Barry Jenkins' previous movie, Moonlight, um, which is a beautiful score. Oh, um, yeah. And I've been listening to the soundtrack, and it is, it's terrific. Really, I would say I a similar kind of Some of these aesthetic. directors, they have movies coming out every year. These like there's certain directors that get nominated. Like there's the guy who is that guy who did Birdman, who was like he won an Oscar like three years in a row for movies. That was crazy, and it's like right because the the Revenant was the Revenant before Birdman, or was that the was after? after? That okay. was that was like two years after. Um, yeah, he that dude two, won yeah. like a couple of years in a row, and I don't understand. And yet Barry Jenkins, he was nominated for Moonlight, and now he's nominated for this, and. That's just, I don't understand how uh, directors making kind of like, I don't know, artistic movies can yeah. kind of like have such a fast turnaround. Well, I'm trying to think, was Moonlight actually two years ago though now? It might have been, it okay. might have been. But um, yeah, so that stuff, that's really exciting. And then the last nominee who I'm really excited about is uh, Ludwig Göransson for Black Panther. Yeah, that was a really cool. That score. was a really cool score, and I've been really fascinated with him for a while. The first time I remember seeing his name was as the composer for the TV show Community, the NBC comedy, and I believe oh. that's where he and Donald Glover first sort of connected. And they've been like a producing team for his Childish Gambino music going back to the early mixtapes. Um, oh, that's cool. And, I didn't realize yeah, that. Yeah, so he actually... Uh, that he, makes a lot of he sense kinda because broke... like, the production in a lot of the Childish Gambino stuff is really interesting and, and unique, and I remember feeling a similar way about the score to Black Panther. It was one of the things that I, I think I liked most about the movie, yeah. actually, was the music. And you, Well, um, he actually broke ground, and I believe it was some kind of record. I think John Burlingame was writing about this um, at the recent Grammy Awards, he won a Grammy for the Black Panther score, which might be a little foreshadowing of how the Oscars could go. Um, and he also uh, won a Grammy for um, for This Is America, the Childish Gambino song. And so I think it's the, the first time that there's been a, a composer that's won in those two categories from projects that have no relation to each other so there have been composers that have won say for a song and for a score but it's typically been a song from from the film of that same right. score um so that's is that's that i wonder exciting. if that's is that completely unbroken like there's never like marvin hamlish won something for a 
you know, I think a movie from I think from, from what I read from the Brewing Game article, I think it I think this was the fir- the very first time. Um, Interesting. Which that's is, cool. Yeah, that's really exciting. So I could see I could see that. But yeah, like like you're saying, I, I'm almost a little like I'm a little reluct- reluctant to watch the Oscars this year, which is like in our family, it's always been a big event. Um, our mothers always loved watching the Academy Awards, so we've usually had some kind of party or some kind of family get together around it. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, it's going to be really strange. I mean, we don't have to go headlong into controversy, but that there's not going to be any host or, you know, because the everything that kind of went on with Kevin Hart, he's in and then he's out. And um, so, yeah, I'm trying to picture really how. Well, I, I actually uh, see I, I had heard like, oh, they booted him from it. But I think what it was is that they like asked him to they wanted him to like publicly apologize. Right. And he said that he wouldn't because he already had. Yeah. He said um, that these were tweets that had been that dug were, up yeah. from years ago that he and had. And I think for. he yeah. just did. He said that he doesn't want to go back. Cause I think he has a bad taste in his mouth. And right. I mean, I personally, I don't, I don't really blame him. I mean, I think Kevin Hart, they, they, the Oscars sort of screwed that up. Yeah. Um, well, not and it's not that, that Ke- I mean, it, Kevin doesn't need the Academy Awards. He's like, Right. Maybe the biggest star in no, in but I think they screwed it up because he would have been a great host. He's yeah, someone so who's too. like a relevant comedian. He has a body of film work that people know and like. Um, I just there's not really another like hot stand up comedian who also has, you know that that same thing. And then the Oscars is also historically had a problem with like representation from the black community. Yeah, so it just seems it's like. I don't know. It seemed like kind of a blunder that they screwed it up with Kevin. So I mean, I I don't know. I just yeah. That that that's that's disappointing, but I understand, you know, controversies happen and big companies want to respond and it is what it is. I I I'm trying to put less stock into what happens at the Oscars cuz the way I look at it is it's like if you're a person and you win an Oscar, it's a great award and it's an incredible accomplishment and something you'd be proud of but if you don't win an oscar it doesn't mean that you didn't actually deserve to it doesn't mean that you didn't write the best score or make the best film or write the best screenplay or create the best documentary um it's it's all subjective you know and it's just there's a lot of pageantry and tradition and i think taking it with a grain of salt is that's just what I'm trying to do because I used to get upset when never John Williams wouldn't win, which was constantly because he writes film scores every year and would get nominated and then wouldn't win and I would be frustrated. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so yeah, that'll be that'll be interesting. Um, I mean, yeah, I, I think I'd, I'll. Yeah, I'm curious who's going to win in in song and score. Uh, I mean, I think I'll I'll be happy with most of uh, most. I mean, these are all you know great. If I'm placing my bet for song, I'm going to guess that it'll be Lady Gaga. Yeah, I think so, too. And I I could see uh, Ludwig Gorenson having maybe maybe some nice momentum after the Grammys. And I wouldn't be surprised if he won for for Black Panther. Um, I, I would love if the if Mary Poppins won score. You could give yeah. Lady Gaga the song. But like I think it would be fair for Mark Scheinman to win score because it's like, I mean, he did score the film, and it's a wonderful score, but it's also kind of like when Alan Menken won for The Little Mermaid. He won right. for score, but he really won because that music was such a big deal. And because I think people were so, the... they were just so knocked out at that, that yeah. production and that 
that film. Yeah, I think that would that would be wonderful. Um I think there's I think there are a lot in the music branch of the academy that are that are just as excited about um what Mark did as as we are. Um so that's exciting. What about uh scores from the past year that were not nominated? I had read that it was actually down to some kind of gaffe in whoever was responsible for submitting the the nominees in time that uh which is why solo uh john powell and the john williams collaboration didn't get a nomination i'll have to track that article down but um i remember reading it i think it was some kind of almost like clerical uh mistake or something um that that's too bad but that was such a good that score. was um that was definitely a standout score this past year for me and any other and scores that are talk about a killer here? piece of music i mean that oh theme gosh. that john wrote and that whole uh, arrangement the adventures of han are just amazing i was just listening to that the other day and just I can't, I don't know, I can't wait for when episode nine is done to just get a compilation of every piece of music that John Williams has ever written for a Star Wars film right. and just kind of put it all together. Well, and now we really have the Galaxy's Edge music, which is right. so exciting. Um, are there scores from the last year that jump out at you and when you're kind of looking back? Hmm. Well, uh, now I'm kind of drawing a blank of like movies that I saw last year uh i mean i think we probably talked a little bit about um alan silvestri's avenger score which i know uh, we didn't speak oh, on this I podcast really liked but it. we both I really actually loved really, i love the avengers i wish that would have gotten a nod some people were critical of it i thought that was really good i mean part of it i i you know i'm not a big marvel fan and I guess I've become a little bit disillusioned with the quality of sort of modern big action kind of music, but I was just so delighted by how kind of old school it was. It yeah. felt like a could have been a Jerry Goldsmith score. It was like really exciting and gallant and yeah, no, uh, totally. it was my favorite part of the movie for sure. And there's really beautiful kind of elegiac emotional stuff at the end. I mean, I thought Alan did a wonderful job. Well, and I mean, speaking of Alan, I mean, his, the ready player one score i mean that's just that's yeah, like a career that was really good highlight i think um uh oh yeah towards the end of the year ralph breaks the internet henry jackman that was terrific oh my gosh oh, sorry i can't believe i didn't i we should have done one of these for that <laughs> yeah. that was also one of my favorite moments in a theater this year first of all getting the new alan menken song was i i was ah, so moved yes. by that but it was like of any movie I've ever seen, it had the most references and nods to other bits of film right. music, other songs, and Henry Jackman's score. Uh, the first Wreck-It Ralph, the score I think is okay, but this one, I mean, he just knocks it out of the park. All of his when he handles all those quotes so gracefully, it it's um, yeah. I mean, there's there's stuff from Star Wars in it. There's Snow White and Cinderella and Beauty and the Beast, and it's just like everything you could imagine. Frozen, Moana. It's just like. Yeah. It's kind of, I don't know, for a sort of nerd fan of all of this music, it, it was just like, I, I felt like a kid in a candy store. I went to see it with Emma, and I mean, I was just freaking out. It's funny, I was we were in a theater filled with parents and children, and <laughs> I was like acting like a little kid pointing at the screen. I'm like, oh, look, it's that. Oh, look, that's happening. And it was just, I was so excited. Oh, that's, by a, it. that's so cool. Well, and speaking of the Mary Poppins thing, uh, Emma lives in Duluth and I live in St. Paul and uh, 
we sort of made the decision that we were going to go see a movie at the same time in different cities. So we both bought tickets for, you know, the 730 showing of Mary Poppins uh, in our respective cities. And then we were going to watch the movie and then call each other afterwards. And it was kind of like going on a little virtual date. It was a really cute idea. But then I also felt very self-conscious of the same thing. But now I'm not even with anybody. Now I'm just this (laughs) creepy guy alone in a theater watching Mary Poppins and just crying and being incredibly moved by this music. Especially, oh, we didn't talk about the overture. So uh, after the first song happens, there's this kind of classic opening title. Uh, with this just wonderful Broadway overture. You and know, these the beautiful the concept and paintings. Or, and I want to say yeah. they, I didn't look into this, but I think they go back to the original uh, Walt Disney Mary Poppins production. I think there was conceptual art for that, I think. Um, but yeah, almost in the style of the the opening title overture for uh, Fiddler on the Roof. But um, this overture is just exceptional. Um and yeah, the orchestration team on this on this film was just amazing. Um, yeah, I, I didn't recognize a lot of the names. I recognized Danny Trube's name. Yeah, um, I saw Danny Trube. Um, but yeah, these oh, this and this, I would say the soundtrack release is really outstanding for Mary Poppins Returns. You, I mean, of course, get all of the songs and really, I think most of the score highlights as well. Yeah, the other thing, the last thing, because we should probably wrap this up. Yeah. Um, but the last thing that I just want to say about some of the great stuff that happens with the music to Mary Poppins is the um, his willingness to modulate, uh, particularly uh, the 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 song that's nominated, uh, "The Place Where the Lost Things Go." It starts with this wonderful chromatic adventure where it's going to different key regions then it'll land in a place and then that will become the third of a new key and then it'll find its way back and it ends with a similar kind of wandering thing where she lands on the one um but then that becomes the third of a flat six and then that sort of it's just like lots of really beautiful and thoughtful harmonic moments of delaying resolution of integrating really interesting uh, emotional kind of weight to a given moment or a melody line and that is just on display throughout the entire score different reprises will be in different keys and it's not just a simple now we're going a half step up you know there's really clever going up a string of minor thirds to get to our new key or yeah, the sort of freedom really that, chromatic that you'd be used to from like a yeah Rogers and Hammerstein overture or entr'acte or something. Um, yeah, I would. Earlier you were saying that uh, occasionally we might encounter some kind of like Broadway pastiche um, in like a contemporary film, but it's it's usually kind of staying kind of safely within whatever lines they've or kind of established. Or it's a bad impression Yeah, or maybe it, a, a bad like impression. But a, a lot of times, La La too, in those... <laughs> calling no names. Um, a lot of times, too, if it's something that, that does feel sort of more carefully worked out harmonically, it kind of exists in this verbatim presentation every time. Right. And, and we see that in film music, too. It's sort of like, oh, this is the theme, which means like the cello will always move this way at this like on this second bar of the melody or whatever which is which is great i'm so glad you brought that Um, up because that's one of the things that excites me the most about this it's the way i feel when i hear a great john williams theme it's like 
this melody is about the specifics of it, but it's also more than that right. because you can change it. You can change this chord to that chord. You can change this rhythm to that rhythm, and it's still the idea. And I think that's a really incredible thing to have a melody that's that durable, that it can undergo change and still be identified for what it is. It's like the overall structure is like so identifiable that even if you change the specifics of the notes, it still is the thing that it is. But like those specific note choices are not arbitrary. You know, it's like it's got it covered in every sense. That's the other cool thing about Mary Poppins is like a lot of the songs Uh, And this is not my favorite trend, but it happens all the time in movies and Broadway of like characters speaking rather than singing melodic phrases. I think it especially happens in this movie for kind of dramatic effect or to sort of relate the songs to the story. You can usually still tell what the melody is supposed to be by what (laughs) the instruments are doing. And it's this kind of cool. It's like a fail safe. It's like they worked really hard to craft this melody but people might speak through it. But like one of those parts that I know that the ending of that um, song we mentioned earlier is supposed to go, but she never, yeah. she never sings it that way. She always speaks those last parts. But then it's not until the end of the song when you hear people sort of vamping on that kind of idea. And then you kind of hear it in the orchestration, yeah. what's what the melody is supposed to be. But there's something I really respect. Well, she does about nail that. that last phrase with that growl like every time. Right, That's right. Really cool. I more mean the kind of the yeah. chords right before. Yeah, it. exactly. But yeah, it's just it's it's kind of there's something I admire about that. Of it's it's not like you know they came up with one great melodic phrase and they need to shoehorn it in everywhere because they're so proud of it. It's kind of it's like the movie is just brimming with that type of high caliber writing. And it, it the fact that people aren't treating it as gospel and are willing to speak over it or change it, it, it makes it feel right. like a real classic the way that people. Well, would that was treat like an old like kind of the old style of Broadway orchestration is that the melody would always be in the. Or- I mean, you, you were usually working with a pretty small chamber orchestra, so it's. It's going to have to be doubled by first violin and flute, and then after the refrain, it's it's uh, usually going to get doubled by trumpet even. Um, and I think um, because you know the size of orchestras, you know, have grown over time in like more mainstream productions and pr- particularly film productions, uh, the orchestrational language has been able to evolve. Um, but yeah, I I feel like. Once again, Mary Poppins Returns just hits that sweet spot where uh, it's bringing with it all of the classic elements that I just really love. Um, but it's, I think it's pushing kind of off into this, this the new century um, in a really, really exciting way. I mean, it's usually using the old language, um, but it's presented in a way, especially looking at the total package in terms of the orchestral playing the orchestration the recording the mixing and the, your final experience of all that music that's it happens at such a high level such a high fidelity um beyond what would have been you know imaginable in movies 40 or 50 years ago when you would have maybe encountered something like this
bobbing and weaving all comes from believing the magic inside the balloon. The past is the past. If you are enjoying the show at all and are so inclined, please feel free to leave a review for the podcast at Apple Podcasts. That's a great way to help more listeners discover Underscore. Yes, you can find us on all manner of social media, Facebook, YouTube. You can find every episode of this show as well as some of our fun supplemental materials at underscorepodcast.com. If you have a comment or question or something that you'd like to share with us, you can send us an email at the underscore show at gmail.com. And as always, you can follow us on Twitter at underscore underscore show. The second underscore is silent. That's all for this week, everybody. And remember, we listen because we love. Take care. Our show is made possible thanks to our generous patrons, including Jean-David Blanc, Travis Anderson, Richard Welch, Jackie Brueggemann, Josh Lucan, Charlie McCarran, Kevin Wang, Jordan Kolosinski, Carlos, Alex Steff, Benji Inniger, Desmond Clark, BJ Crawford, Simon Parker, and David Liu. Thank you so much for your support and for listening. Underscore is part of the Marcado Brothers Podcast Network. <laughs> of course, the grown ups will all forget about tomorrow. They always do. <laughs> <laughs>